Welcome to Live from My Drum Room. My guest today is seven-time Grammy Award-winning jazz drummer, composer, and band leader, Jeff Tane Watts. Uh, Jeff is an old friend of mine, and I'm excited to have him on the show today. He's recorded and performed with literally a who's who in the music industry, including Wynton Marsalis, Brantford Marsalis, George Benson, Harry Connick Jr., McCoy Tyner, Kenny Garrett, Michael Brecker, Betty Carter, Kenny Kirkland, Courtney Pine, and the list goes on and on. He's also uh, won the Modern Drummer Reader's Poll for Best Jazz Drummer twice. Um, and did I mention he's won seven Grammys? I think I might have mentioned that. It actually may be more by the time we're done with this show today. So uh, we'll have to check at the end to see. But uh, I'm excited to have Jeff Tane Watts here today, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Please welcome the great... Jeff Tane Watts, seven-time Grammy Award-winning Jeff Tane Watts. <laughs> wait a minute. What time is it? It could be eight-time Grammy Award. It could Award be right now. Wait. Uh-oh. Wait a minute. This... <laughs> oh, what a look. <laughs> it just fell out of the sky. It's, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Okay. You're rain it's raining Grammys on Tane. Exactly. Yeah. Oh man, it's so good to see you, man. Yeah, always great, my man. You're the best. Yes, definitely. Thank you, and you, you're the best too. And I, you know, we're, I'm going to go backwards for one second. Well, a lot of what we talk about is going to be going backwards, as as, as you can imagine. But I, I want to tell everybody that uh, already there's a whole bunch of people asking questions. So I, I promise I'll get to as many of these as I can. But I just want to tell everybody how honored I am to know Jeff, going back to. By my recollection, 1980, is that about right? Does that sound oh, yeah, well, yeah. I, well, I got to Berkeley yeah. for the fall 79 semester, but I wasn't hanging out that much because I, you know, I have this whole thing where my my drum kit got lost for the first semester. So probably probably like in the winter of 80 or something like that, I started. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I started like at the end of 79 at, at, at Wurlitzer. Wow. So, so that's about, yeah. So it would have been, yeah, early 1980. Yeah. And, uh, and, Man, I just, I'm not just saying this because you're a famous jazz drummer now, Grammy award winning drummer, but I just dug you right from the minute I met you just because of that, what I, what you just did, right? That smile, like <laughs> you were just this funny, cool dude that used to come in and, uh, you know, and, and I remember the Gretsch set that you bought and yeah, that, that was, uh, I, yeah, it anyway. was it was refreshing just being in Boston. I had done I had done two years at at Duquesne University, and I was like more of a like a classical major and stuff. So I mean, I got to Boston, and and you can just imagine me coming from Pittsburgh, and you know all these great musicians at the school and the scene in Boston, and you know going to Michael's and Pooh's Pub and all the shops and you know all the colleges and stuff like that. You know, so yeah, it was like like a very liberating time. Yeah, good. A lot of there was definitely a scene to soak up in those days too. Like you say, all those, the club scene. You know, like a lot of towns. You know, it's not what it used to be, but it was what a scene it was back then. Yeah, yeah. For for a Berkeley student too, you could you know to like be able to go out and play during the week and with some great players and and uh, and be part of that. Yeah. Uh, and and Smitty, I, I feel like came along right about the same time. And yeah, Smitty came in. Or, Gene Jackson, you know, and. Yeah. You know, cats were already on the scene. You know, Tommy Campbell was doing his thing all over the place. And, you know, Cindy Blackman. Tommy. So many, so many cats, man. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 I know, man. 
Um, and, and, you know, you that I'm glad you mentioned, you know, coming from, from a classical background and I didn't know that till recently. And I was going to ask you about that, but I wanted to, I wanted to ask you first, um, you, I mean, you, you studied classical music at Duquesne, but you were still, you were playing drums like in high school, right? Or were you playing, I know you played in the marching band, did you say too? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I definitely, I definitely got into music from the, like the, the school music system. So, so during the day, all my activities were, um, you know, marching band and concert band. Eventually I was in drum corps and, you know, starting to do percussion ensemble and, and new music. And then the drum set, I was mostly self-taught. You know, I had a kid at home and I would just like play with the radio and stuff, you know. And then, yeah. And then eventually like fusion and things like that. But yeah. And so, and that wasn't your real focus early on, right? It was really, you were really kind of like, kind of more thinking you were going to pursue classical, like classical playing timpani, I think is what you studied at Duquesne. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, you know, most of my performance was, was classical at the time, you know, um, when I got to Duquesne, I eventually I was, you know, I was playing in the jazz band and, and I started playing, in a, I played in a, a regional R and B band that had like one tune that was on the radio and stuff like that. But, um, that, that that's kind of like where 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 I was where I was leaning until until I got to Berkeley and I started to play more drums you know started to yeah. think about that as a as a career yeah yeah I I wow man I didn't I I assumed like a lot of drummers that you came to Berkeley as a already a pretty fully formed drummer you know what I mean like you came in there as a as a cat that had been playing back in Pittsburgh and you know on the scene there and you'd come into so that that's amazing that you I guess what I'm getting at Jeff is that it's pretty amazing that not long after you got to Berkeley you hooked up with with Winton right and started playing with him in the early 80s. Yeah the, yeah I guess the, one of the funny things is you know when I when when I was at Duquesne you know I was kind of like a fusion guy I wanted to be like many people I wanted to be Billy Cobham or or Narada or some you know Steve Bell or <laughs> Lenny White or somebody like that and um you know but then I started to 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 learn about traditional jazz, and um, you know I, I studied with uh with the great Roger Humphreys in Pittsburgh. So so basically basically, in a two year span, I found out who Charlie Parker was and who Art Blakey was and Max Roach was, and like within two years I was in New York working with Winton. So you know so all this time I've been kind of backtracking and trying to you know keep abreast of what's happening, but, um, but learn about the tradition, you know? Yeah, yeah. man. Um, no, I, I just, that fascinates me that it, it, things happen so quickly for you, you know, but, but that's because of, you know, you win Grammys, you gotta, you, you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna, oh man. So when you, when you were starting off as a, as a young player where they're, were there some influences like that, you know, who were some of the people you listened to as a, as a, you know, as a younger player? Yeah, I guess whenever, um, when I was coming up, you know, first, um, I had a, I had kind of a toy drum set and it was, everything was kind of random. And then, um, when I got in perhaps the sixth grade, you know, I had been studying snare drum for, for like a year in the school music system. And I, you know, I used to, um, they used to loan, they loaned me a snare drum and I used to carry it home, like in a shopping bag and, and do my lesson and stuff. And then um, I think in sixth grade, 
I got a, a Sears and Roebuck drum set. You know, they were actual wooden drums, like maybe yeah. a rack tom and a 20-inch kick and a snare drum with a little cymbal mount and, you know, one of those real tin kind of cymbals up there. So I That's like my little star kit right there. That Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but just one. I had one of those. And I had that for year for like a, for like a year, and then um, I didn't have a hi hat, and then um, I guess the theme from Shaft came out, so everybody had to have a hi hat. So I went. And, <laughs> I, saved, I saved my allowance, and I bought like a hi hat downtown for twenty dollars, twenty five dollars, or something like that. But I was playing along with the radio, like R and B radio, playing with trying to play with James Brown and early Stevie Wonder and parliament and mandrill and um you know and, you know later on like a little rock and roll like you know deep purple and and people got me into like black sabbath and stuff but um that's yeah that's that, that was kind of what i would do you know during the day i would re- rehearse all this this classical stuff at school and then i would come home at night and just play with hits from the radio you know i mean yeah, yeah. stevie wonder and whatever but um yeah, so I did that for a while. And then when I got halfway through high school, my oldest brother, James, he started working at a um at a he was going to the University of Pittsburgh. So he started working at a at a college record store. And then, you know, this was like at when fusion was really hot. So he he started bringing home these records for me. Like when my birthday would happen, he would he'd bring home like like Billy Cobb and Crosswinds, like check this out and or Return to Forever, Where Have I Known You Before, or Romantic Warrior and stuff like that. So I got into that and got really deep into, into my Vishnu Orchestra. I started, you know, the, going to concerts when they would play in town and, you know, um, going to see, um, you know, I saw Zappa with, with Vinny back in the day and Terry Bozio and all that stuff. And, um, and whatever, you know, so that was, that was kind of my thing, you know, like playing, playing like funk and fusion on the drums, and and just trying to work on my technique. I was in drum corps. I was in this corps, the um, the Pittsburgh Royal Crusaders, and uh, I never I never went to DCI. In the, in the summertime, I was always involved in in orchestra, but the corps. I guess one year they got to like ninth in DCI and stuff like that. So it was a, it was a very legit corps, and. Um, and you play? Did you play snare drum? Did you play? I played, I played uh, uh, like like quads, and I played um, I played xylophone one year, like marching, like kind of like a yeah. thing. Yeah, I yeah. played that. But um, yeah, so you know, it was fun. I was just really my whole my whole time, like in high school, music was it was an activity, and I just you know I dug doing it. It was like I did music. I tried to do sports and was horrible. You know, I was like. <laughs> but every year, every year they would come and try to get me to. You know, I was, I was kind of big. So the football coach, come on, man, you got to join the team. I'm like, man, yeah, I'm gonna be terrible. You know. <laughs> 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 you know? But for a minute, I was kind of like a lineman, like offensive, defensive lineman. I was a horrible track athlete, like the weakest <laughs> shot putter and discus thrower. <laughs> terrible. But um, but then eventually, you know, everything was music. Everything was music all the time. And I'm one another thing. I, I definitely have to commend um my high school band director uh, John A. Thompson, and also one of my early uh, private instructors, Michael Coomer, who was uh, who was um 
in addition to being, he was like an alternate with the symphony and he was kind of a, like a drum corps clinician. And he actually used to come to Boston and, and do things for the Lancers, I think. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, for 27 Lancers. And, stuff like that. <clears throat> and Revere Mass. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, yeah, but, um, you know, they would just expose me to stuff, you know, it's like, if like Oscar Peterson was in town or, you know, uh, you know, Chick Corea or just anything weather report or something like that might be in town. You know, they, they would take me and another, another drummer friend of mine and just like take us to stuff. Um, they, I remember they used to take us to uh West Virginia university to see, they had like a very strong percussion program. Uh, this guy, uh, Phil Faini, who I think is still around. Um, yeah, we go yeah. down here and see the percussion ensemble. It would be great. You know, they would, they would have like, you know, like, examples of new music and, and contemporary percussion and also like African percussion and stuff like that, you know, really, really great department. But um, yeah, I just got exposed to that stuff. But the I, I'll say that the thing was I was checking out fusion and then I started to see, I, I, I wanted to be versatile. So, so from fusion, I was, I was into like the power guys, like, like Billy and Alphonse Muzon and people like that. And then also people that were slick, like Harvey Mason and Gad and stuff like that. And then I started reading about um, Harvey and that he had gone to New England Conservatory and he was, you know, versatile and could play mallets and play all this different stuff. So I was, it was kind of like similar to my background. So I was kind of, I started aspiring in that direction. So what led me to swinging jazz or snake jazz as they say on rick and morty what led me to that is kind of like a um i just wanted to not suck if somebody called me for a jingle or a, a soundtrack and play some wingy stuff and, and yeah you know so, so i wanted to find out how to do it better or learn really learn about it and um you know i played in jazz band but i but i always say this there's like there's a way that in America, you can be in in a in a stage band program, you know, and they have like very specific mm-hmm. music for a four stage band that's arranged like that and and composed for that. And you can be involved in that and not really know the tradition somehow. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. It's yep. like its own little world and whatever. But um, this uh, great piano player that was in the conservatory with me at Duquesne. David Budway, he said, man, you know, if you want to find out about, about, you know, swinging jazz, you should go to Roger Humphreys. And, you know, and so this is back in the olden days. So he's like, yeah, he's in the phone book. Just look in the phone book. And I man, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So I look in the phone book and he's like, yeah, Jeff, just come on over. So I used to, I used to go to his house every other week and um, like catch like three buses and, and walk to his house and, and, um, you know, he would, he would just show me stuff and then let me come to his gigs and, and, you know, give me like the essence of what, you know, what, you know, traditional jazz was about and stuff. What kind of, so at that point, so you're, you'd graduated high school, you're like maybe your first year to Duquesne yeah. at this point, yeah. like 18. And, and by that point, like you could read, I'm sure really well, right. Just from, just from all the years in school band, you could, so you could walk in there and he could put something in front of you and you'd, you'd be able to know what it was. And, but what kind of stuff did he, what, what were some of the things he showed you or, you know, you know, it was kind of wild. It was kind of, it was like, um, you, you know, just like, maybe like he gave me like a, like a strong, like kind of shuffle feel to reinforce the, the swing. Um, he showed yeah. me what to play. And like, if, if I had to play like a, like a, 
kind of like a six, eight kind of Latin feel or Elvenish feel and things like that. Uh, some stuff with the brushes. Um, just, I will say whenever, whenever I first played snare drum, um, I learned traditional grip and I played that. And then whenever I was in eighth grade, you know, the, the teacher that I told you about, he was a drum corps guy. And, you know, there was like that yeah. big match grip movement, like in the mid seventies or something like that. It was yeah. like, wow, match grip. Yeah. And everybody, you know, doing it. <laughs> and then that's when Max Roach switched the match grip and he just, he played that for the rest of his career. And so they switched my whole school district to match grip. And so I was doing it and, you know, and, learning marimba and timpani and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, match grip, this is cool. But then when I got with Mr. Humphreys, he was like, man, you playing that match grip. For some reason, he, <laughs> he equated that with like a like a European aesthetic or something like that. And it's like the traditional grip was like the soulful grip. And this was like, you know, maybe a little bit corny or something. Like I, I would yeah, almost yeah. think it's the other way around or whatever, in a way, you know, it's kind of like, this is like the first thing you do with a pair of sticks. And, and this is to accommodate a parade drum, I guess, or whatever, the, the sling from the parade drum. But anyway, he, he, he insisted that I play some traditional group also. So now I, I switch back and forth all the time. And I don't even think about it. You know, that's great, man. That's I, I was going to, cause I, every time I, you know, when I see pictures of you or if I see videos, it, I feel like you're playing traditional almost all the time that I, that I, think of you you know but uh but that's great that you can do you can switch so comfortably i'll tell you it's yeah. kind of like um when i have to really play some stuff around the drums i'm playing match grip but for swing swag you, you know there's something about just kind of sinking down that traditional yeah. grip and, yeah yeah do you find jeff that you're um if if you're if you're playing more like articulate type stuff too if you're playing you know, more fills and, and more technical stuff. Do you find it's easier to do that traditional grip? Like you can, you can get your, your left hand is going to be more, uh, I, I, I don't know. It's maybe it could be the opposite of what you think, but I, do you find having when starting as traditional grip that that's still the more comfortable grip to play more technical stuff, I guess is what I'm asking. There's certain little, little finessey things, little, little, little kind of intricate cute things, I guess. I, you know, I easily have like, like more power and, and, you know, I mean, ah, yeah, for me now, it's kind of like my traditional grip is, is, is purely for swag and jazz comping and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. 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 Okay. I, there was a question I'm going to, I'm going to ask before it slides away from uh, Michael Powers, an old friend of mine. And uh, yeah, thanks for the question, Michael. And he's asking me to ask you your top three uh, influences and you, I know you mentioned Billy and Harvey and, uh, but who would you say your top three, if you, and it, one of those loaded questions. It's I know hard. that's hard, man. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. That's hard. I, yeah. You know, I, maybe like going back to that time, like the guys that really sort of like, yeah, you know, you I, to. I guess from, from back then it would be like, like like maybe like Narda and 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 um Harvey, you know, I wanted to have that 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 strength game and Narda had that, you know, and he was funky. And, and yeah. you know, Har Harvey Mason I, I dug and um 
Were you listening much to Tony in those days? You know what? That- I got in, yeah, I got into Tony like right before I whenever whenever I started to get prepared to to play with Winton. It was it was mm-hmm. kind of like um I hadn't been playing traditional jazz very long. And for some reason they liked me and they wanted to, you know, Branford kind of recruited me out of school. Branford was in college with us too. Like you yeah, know, he and yeah. Donald Harrison. So he he pulled me into the band and he was like, um, you know, so I was so I just tried to use my logical mind because I didn't want to get fired. <laughs> so I was like, man, who's who is this guy? Who's this guy went to Marcellus anyway? Who is he? I'm like Who's he been playing with? Okay, he played with Art Blakey. So I got to really try to swing, like, very, very hard. So I'm, like, working on shuffles and working on that. And then I was working on, um, okay, he's from New Orleans. I know nothing about New Orleans music. So I'm like, okay, I'm listening to Louis Armstrong with the Hot Five and the Hot Sevens. I'm, I'm hearing Paul Barbaran. I'm listening to uh, uh, Louis Armstrong at Symphony Hall with Sid Catlett and stuff like that and um you know james black and people like that and then um he had been playing he had just come off the road with with herbie so it's like the impossible task of of you know trying to assimilate tony williams you know (laughs) 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 you know but i mean you know i mean as as it sits right now i'm i'm of course heavily influenced by like elvin and and at Blackwell in a certain kind of way. Um, at the same time, there's a there's a a large Latin influence on my playing. So so I have to talk about somebody like Larry Shankito and my brother El Negro and Steve Berrios, people like that. And yeah. um, you know, I come from that fusion background. So definitely Billy, there was a time when Steve Gabb was my was my favorite drummer, Jerry Brown, people like that. And then um Growing up, I wanted to be, if I could wake up and be an Earth, Wind, and Fire, if I could just be Fred White for like a month, I, you know. Yeah, it, man. Yeah. It'd be like a really yeah. slamming thing. You know? <laughs> so I loved him. I loved Jerome Braley. I loved, you know, I like, I love the P-Funk. Um, you know, John Bonham later, you know, like Ian Pace and people like that, you know, but um, a lot of people there. Yeah. That's great, man. You, you, you Those are really very, inf- you know, similar but varied influences too that 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 make up who you are you know yeah obviously it, it all goes into that melting pot and it comes out you yeah. um man we got you got so many questions too jeff i'm going to just try to throw a couple your way yeah. for the uh let's see let's see there's there was something here i was going to come back to hang on a second everybody wow so many questions slow down on the questions everybody <laughs> <laughs> uh, um Scott Goulding said, I heard that a Berkeley drum teacher discouraged you to, to continue playing drums, which blows my mind. But since I went there myself, I'm not surprised. Oops, that could be a diss on Berkeley. We don't want to do that. No. Was there some experience where one of your instructors said, focus on you know, classical, not drum set? Or Oh, um, it was kind of like, um, you know, now that I, I teach more, you know, I'm like, in, you know, I go out and do workshops and master classes and residencies and stuff like that. I have like a little, you know, I think back on my own experience and I can, I can dig it. You know, it's like sometimes I'll get impatient with a student and it's kind of like, you know, on a certain level, at, at a certain time when you're teaching somebody, 
you know, some of, you know, you can, you can teach people with music and play them examples of things, but a lot of time you're trying to um, build like a framework or build like a, you know, a base so that they can go, you know, you'll need for them to, to absorb something that's kind of anal or like some building blocks or some stuff. And it doesn't seem like it's leading to anything. And if you don't yeah, do it, yeah. then you can't install all this other stuff. So it might be like, so I had a teacher who will be nameless. And he was like, he had like linear patterns. You know, it was like combinations of left, left and right hand and right foot and left foot, every possibility of that, you know, which is useful somewhere somewhere you're gonna you're gonna gonna have to play your your right hand and then your left foot and then you and then your left you know it's some somewhere you're gonna use that but it's not where i was at so i so i was a little lax in 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 installing that system and stuff like that so he got kind of frustrated and he just kind of told me um that i should think about doing something else you know jesus (laughs) i'm sorry man (laughs) Uh, I I wonder if I know who this this teacher. I'll is. say his name if you want. He he probably won't. Is it is it or is his initials G G? No, his no. initials are no. T N. T N. Yeah, this uh, is a T N. You okay. won't even you'll never guess him. But I'll say his name. You want me to say his name? Can I say it? Sure. Yeah. His, he, you know he's a pretty cool drummer and he's actually kind of like a Tony disciple and his name his name was Tony Notarfonzo. That was his name. Okay. Yeah, but you know that, that was like during that period in Boston when all the the chafy stuff was going around, patterns for drum set, and you know, yeah, and and it is true. It's like you learn, you kind of learn these patterns and groupings and linear groupings, and then you learn how to fit them all together so that they add up to sixteen or add up to twelve, and you know, and you put your foot in there, and then you associate like polyrhythmic stuff with the groupings, and you know, eventually you can build like a nice thing, and I can dig it. You know, but yeah, he did it though. He definitely did it. I just took it for <laughs> no. That's yeah. yeah, that's cool. And you know, like you say, you you as a teacher yourself now, you can look back at that and go, yeah, man, I get. He was he was trying to he's trying to give me something to put in my in my toolbox, and it, maybe you just felt it wasn't something you wanted to spend a lot of time on, you know. And yeah, I'll tell you, I, I have students now. I'll have. <laughs> You know, I'll have music stuff and feel stuff and, and you know, basis of, you know, with drums, it's very easy because there's a lot of things that involve actual music. But then if you can go down a rabbit hole of things that have nothing to do with music, but everything to do with drums, you know, it's just all kind of like weird little, you can get as weird as you want to, <laughs> you know, which is, which yeah. is beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> but, you yeah. know, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to reinforce that with some some music too at the same time but i'll have students and i'll give them stuff and and i'm like man if you would just get this together you know this is going to be the key and then i can give you all this other stuff that relates to what you're trying to do and you'll be able to do it and have freedom and power and be cool i'll let you do some more questions no man this is great this is i i love that you're you know you're making it really easy for me okay between the 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 good questions we're getting and you're just, you know, you're just letting it go. I love yeah. it. Um, so many people say hello. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. 
how did, okay, so Antonio Gracie, how did he work on a lot of his metric modulation tempo stuff, playing a different pulse within the original tempo of a tune? Uh, did you work with a metronome? Okay, so, you know, I got, I started to become aware of polyrhythm in general. And, um, you know, I get, I will say when I was at, when I, when I was in the conservatory, one of the things that fascinated me, they had the, the device that's called a trinome. Have you seen, have you seen one of those? No, I, I haven't. There's a thing that, there's a thing that, that classical composers use, and it's like a wind-up box. It's a wind-up box, and there'll be like three levers that you can push across, and you might push one to three, you might push one to seven. It's like a like like a music box in a way, and, and you might push one to, to to five, and then you wind it up and you turn it on, and it clicks by. So all those time signatures play at the same they time. They play at the same time. Oh man! Yeah. Okay, I've never heard of this. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Look up China. I mean, now you don't really need okay. it because digitally, there's so many ways they can do that, you know. But back then, yeah. it was like wow. So I, you know, I got interested in that. And then when I when I got to Berkeley, that was a big thing. And then uh, you know I became aware of, of course, the great great Ken with Denard, and people were like really starting to freak with polyrhythm. So I so so it, so it started to interest me, and um, you know I just basically I started to just sit in my room at school and write all the different possibilities, like you know playing four four over five and three over five and stuff over seven. And then eventually I just kind of, you know, stumbled into the basic formula of computing polyrhythm. You know, we, you know, I always say if you have four over five, um, you go to the second number and you say five. Okay, there's five beats. Then you go back to the four and you say, let's divide each beat into four equal parts. So if these are quarter notes, then you take the 16th notes in five. So you have five beats of 16th notes. And then you go back to the five in the equation and you accent every fifth note to compute four over five. So I started doing that for everything. And, um, you know, I wanted to add that that modulation thing or expound upon it in the in the jazz tradition as an extension of of what Tony Williams was doing with Miles Davis. And I'll say like Danny Richmond was doing with Charles Mingus and stuff like that. You know, a lot of times Mingus, they would like playing a swinging time and then play in the triplet time above that. So I just wanted to make myself very comfortable playing anything on top of anything and also initiating the polyrhythms, like either on the one and resolving on the one or, or in the middle of the bar or whatever and stuff like that. And um, so I got into the linear stuff, uh, pure polyrhythm stuff, like really playing four, four, like five beats or seven beats over four or over three. And, and again, you know, a lot of it is in your ear. Yeah, a lot of it is your ear becoming accustomed to that texture of that time against the, against the, the base, the basic tempo and stuff like that. So I got comfortable with that. So a lot of the things I play are combinations of those things. And also what happens in like in African music or Afro-Cuban music where, where everything kind of bends, everything kind of bends. Mm -hmm. Like it's like the difference between clave and four four and clave is six eight. It's like they're the same. They work against it with in conjunction with each other, but somehow they're different too at the same time. So I, I kind of take advantage of that 
with with the with the European concept of, of polyrhythm that I that I explained, and um, you know, I, I just I just kind of mix them up, you know, to yeah. try to get to something that's like emotional and organic. Yeah, yeah, man, with 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 great feeling too. I'm sure. You yeah, know, I'm trying to get to which, yeah, which is so you know. To me, that's the magic when you can play all those things and and just you know the way you do it too, and make it feel the way you do. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll say, I, I, I when when I, when I do stuff, I try to have some kind of like organic reference or a reason to do it, a reason to do it that's you know that's either from nature or emotional and stuff like that. Some kind of inspiration, some kind of thing to shoot for, as opposed to I'm doing this because I can do it. You know, yeah, so important yeah. to me. Go ahead. No, that's great, man. That's great. Um, had a great question from Peter Retzlaff, who I think you know, Pete, yeah. um, Drummers Collective. Yeah. And uh, he he said, when did you start composing? I love your tunes. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'll tell you, I, I had a block, you know, uh, I mean, I took I took some composition at Berkeley, but I was too involved with hanging out and just jamming with people and trying to go to college parties and stuff like that. So I didn't... <laughs> I wasn't very seriously. I, I wasn't very diligent with my with my composition harmony classes and stuff like that, and so I would be like playing with all these people, and you know you could really get paid for putting songs on recordings and things like that. And and Winston, come on, man, write something, man. You'll make some money, man. Come on, we, you know, we know you're thinking about something. Yeah. You know, you got a big head. You know, you're thinking about something. You know, come on. <laughs> But um, you know, big brain. Yeah, yeah. yeah but you know, Branford and 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 Kenny Kirkland and Jerry Allen and all these people, they were like, "Man, write something." And I was just being, I was just like embarrassed. I was embarrassed. But I, I will say that when while I was at the Tonight Show, that um, you know, Kenny Kirkland and I we lived together, and he and he encouraged me, and he's you know, because I have really great, I have great ears, I have perfect pitch. So he just said, "Man, forget yeah. about rules and just write what you hear." Because there's a certain amount of there's a certain amount of natural harmony that takes place. I mean, drummers, we you know, we have we have it more together than we think because we're we're sitting in the middle of all this music all the time, and you're listening to stuff, and you hear how things resolve, and you hear you know you can hear if a, if a progression is good or if it's bad, you know, and and yeah. you know, so he just encouraged me to write as opposed to to you know, embracing all the, having, having to have all the rules in place and all this, you know, the, the box stuff or whatever. He's like, you already know how music sounds. So, so I just started writing. I started writing and, and people encouraged me to, to use like rhythmic devices that I was using to, to arrange other people's music and like stuff like that. So, you know, yeah, I, my frame of reference is, is pretty wide. Like I, you know, I have stuff that's, it's it's based on booze. There's stuff that's based on like um, you know, I have one tune, the, the Impaler, and there's a vamp in it that's in seven four, but it's based on skin type by the Ohio players. You know, it could be from anywhere. You know. Yeah. But, yeah. Wow. Yeah. When when did you discover? When did you realize that you have perfect have perfect pitch? How old were you when? You know what. I knew I had something different, but I didn't know what it was. And so um, I'll say like when I was in elementary school, 
um one of my brothers had a had a like you know like the early little reel to reel tape decks you know you'd like yeah record music off the radio and try to be hip and stuff like that totally yeah yeah and so we we'd be playing stuff from the radio on these on this on this thing and then eventually it would it would get slower like the battery would wear down so instead yeah. of um instead of cold sweat being in the i don't care dean instead of it being up there it would be down there i don't care i don't care about your past and i would be like man it's slowing down and my brothers wouldn't be able to hear it. They'd be like, oh, get out of here, man. You, you know, you're just messing with me about, about this. And so yeah. I just, wow. I could always recognize pitch. And so, but then whenever I was, was doing the classical thing in high school, um, you know, I, I gravitated to the timpani and I, and I just started playing it. And the, and the, everybody was like, how are you doing that? And I'm like, what? And everybody needed a tuning fork or needed a pitch pipe. And I was just going and tune and tune. I was like, okay, I need a B flat and an E flat. I would just do it. And so then somebody told me, probably in tenth grade, they said you have perfect pitch. And they said that one in ten thousand people has it, and you and it's pitch recognition, and you you could kind of develop yeah. something close to it, but you you usually you're born with it. So that's what it is. I was just going to say, yeah, my my understanding is. You, yeah, you're you're born with it, man. That's that's like a that's that's the gift of all gifts. Besides your good looks. Well, yeah, I mean, you that's... know, I I can't help anybody with that. It's definitely <laughs> <laughs> no, man. I didn't. I, that's that's fantastic. I didn't know that. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Man. Smitty has it too. Smitty has perfect. I didn't. Yeah. yeah. Well, talking about Marvin Smitty Smith, by the way, for for those of you, yeah, yeah, the great Marvin Smitty Smith, who will be on a future episode as well. Uh, track track my man down but i gotta just quickly give you give you a little shout out from our buddy vince wilburn who sends his, sends his love to you and me yes yo v um all right I'm, I, and i've got a couple questions i, I want to just throw your way too so you talked early on about um you know within that kind of that's for venice that's for v mac Oh, V. Yeah. For V. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was going to say the number two when you did that. I'm like, okay, can you read minds too? <laughs> like, whoa, what is going on? No, you, you mentioned, um, within a couple of year period, you know, you would, you would left Berkeley, moved to New York at that point to work with when you, when you left school, I always, I guess I always want to think it was Branford, but it was Winton Marcellus first that you, kind of joined his band, right? Yeah, yeah, but Branford kind of put the band together. He did. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Cuz cuz I I I guess I associate you more with Branford because of the I guess the later years, the Tonight Show and 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 all that. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So so you you basically like a lot of drummers, like a lot of musicians when you went to Berkeley, did you did you think you'd graduate? I mean, were you kind of looking long-term or were you thinking, I want to, I want to go there. I want to play. I want to learn stuff, meet people. And cause it seems like, and, and I'll let you finish Jeff, but I was going to say, I, I feel like your generation was, was more like that. Like, you know, Vinny and you mentioned Kenwood and, and uh, all these great drummers. Cindy was there around the same time you were there that kind of, you know, it didn't stick around too long when the right gig, when the right opportunity came along, it's like you take it, you know? Yeah. So I wondered if you, if you had the idea of, of graduating, but then this opportunity came or were you just thinking, 
I want to hook up with some great players and and go. Yeah, everything is pretty un- unconscious with me. It's like, you know, especially especially within my family, I, I feel like it was important for um for me to go to college and get a degree and finish school, you know, and it, and yeah. then I didn't grow up with a lot of professional, you, you know, I didn't really know like very many professional musicians personally. Like like most of the people I knew in Pittsburgh, you know, they might play uh, every Friday at, you know, the Whoopi Bar or something like that. You know, they might be in a band or something like that. But they might work <laughs> yeah. in a steel mill or something like that. They might have like a whole nother job. So, I mean, I pursued music because my teachers told my parents that I should do it. You know, and they said, like, he can do this. If he wants to do it, he should do it. But at the same yeah. time, I was I was not afraid, but, you know, there was a period of time, like, I, I think when I applied to Carnegie Mellon University, I was I was considering a, a double major in, like, music and computer science because I was really good with math. And then I told somebody the other day, it was also during a time, like, late 70s, early 80s, where they were they were encouraging minorities to pursue careers in engineering. You know, it was kind of like a big thing, you know, it's like, hey, get a mm-hmm. job and it's, it's good. And, you know, they were trying to be inclusive and, you know, they were pushing people in that direction. But when I was at school, I was just happy to play with people all the time. You know, everybody just kind of pushed me in everything, you know? Yeah. 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 You know, these, this guy heard me and this cat wanted to jam and, and whatever. And then I just started playing around Boston you know, playing at um, Satches and playing the cl- playing the little clubs and stuff like that. But um, I thought I was going to graduate. I, I really, I really thought I was going to graduate. And then, yeah. And then, um, you know, but then, you know, I started commuting into New York a little bit, but just mostly just going down there, staying at somebody's house over Thanksgiving, you know, and then you know, go in the Village Vanguard or go in different clubs and look. Wow, this is cool. These people are out there playing. But it was encouraging seeing. You know, when I was in Boston, I guess it started to be more of an option because I would, you know, I would see young people interacting with masters. So I would go and go to Lulu White's and and see like Johnny Griffin, but Kenny Washington is playing. He's like 18 or 19 years old, you know, just got out of high school, but he's playing with somebody that I heard on an Art Blakey record and, you know, that, that I admired. And, um, and, you know, while I was at Berkeley, I guess I started seeing, uh, you know, I went to see McCoy Tyner and and Ronnie Barrage is playing with him. He, you know, he felt like a reasonably young person and stuff like that. So it seemed like an option. And then, you know, you know, Smitty started commuting and working with John Hendricks and Branford started playing with uh, Clark Terry and Art Blakey and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I didn't really foresee it for myself, but then you know, after like two, two or three semesters of Berkeley, it's like, you know, I'm recording Winton's first record. And then, okay, so I, I recorded it and I probably could have moved to New York after recording it, but my parents were like, go back to school. So I went back to school and, but I'm starting to commute to New York. So, so Ron Carter hears about me. So I'm like in his band. So I started jumping on the bus and going to New York to play with him, to play with Lou Soloff and stuff like that. And then finally, um, I guess it was time for, for Winton's recording to come out. And Branford was already in New York. And so I was walking through the Berkeley dorm, you know, back with the payphones on the wall and stuff like that. 
<laughs> you know, everybody would line up to call home and yeah, oh my, yeah, reverse charges and call all the family and stuff like that. <laughs> and so I was, I was in the dorm. I was walking up the hall, and somebody was on the phone, and they were like, "Yeah, Jeff just went down the hall," and they were talking to Branford. So he Branford's like, "Get him on the phone, put him on the phone." And I, so I, I said, "What's happening?" He's like, "Man, you got to move to New York." Don't go back to school for the winter semester. Don't. This is like winter, January 82, that semester. Don't go back to school. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, we're starting a band. Just go home. Go home. Go home. We'll call you. We'll call you in like March or April or something like that. I was like, really? All right. All right. All right. So I went home. I told my parents, I said, man, I'm, you know, I'm just going to be around here. And my dad was like, what? He's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm going to play with this guy, you know? And and back then, nobody could say Winton's name. They were like, Wil- Wilton, the Winton. <laughs> Who is that Winton? What kind of name is that? Who is that? <laughs> yeah, this guy, he's really exciting. He's going to, you know, I mean, you know, I'm sure a lot of people remember the first time they heard, like, somebody like Winton, like, really play the trumpet that well it's like it was obvious that he was gonna yeah. be noted, no you know have some notoriety for something so i just was at home my dad was like okay all right just be home and but that lasted about two weeks he's looking at me on the couch like eating up snacks and everything he's like man you, know, you might have to go get a job man it's like i don't know nothing about this but they were cool and then i and then i just moved to new york and crashed on this floor and then all of a sudden, I was in the scene, and you know, and they yeah. everybody was so so popular, you know. So we were so you know, our Blakey lived up the hall. I used to go and, and sit and watch him play the piano or get in his his car. He had a Rolls Royce. He'd take me and cruise around Central Park. It's like it's like a dream, you know. It's like yeah, you know. And you were like twenty two, yeah. right? I mean, like, yeah, yeah, man, unbelievable, crazy. Yeah. Well, I I. I I remember we talked about it before. Like little side story, this this uh, little Gretsch drum set had come in, traded in at Wurlitzer where I was working. That's where I met Tane. Everybody watching, if I didn't mention that earlier, and uh, so many, yeah, so many great memories. Anyway, this Gretsch kit comes in. Was it Champagne Sparkle? Is that? Am I remembering it was, it was that right? Kind of like that that grayish blue oystery thing. Grayish. Oh, it was oh, okay. Yeah. That satin flame kind of thing. Yeah, I guess so. It's like, like yeah. It's okay. Like little, yeah. It's kind of like grayish yeah. blue. Yeah. And was it was it an eighteen inch bass drum and a twelve and a fourteen or a twenty inch a 20. bass drum? Twenty and a twelve and a fourteen yeah. maybe. Yeah. Okay. And I and we had it for sale. And you came in and looked at it a couple of times. And you go, man, these drums, you know. And and you're like, I know, you know. And eventually you bought yeah. them, which is great. And. uh and I remember thinking, man, I, I should have bought those, you know, because they were such great. But I was so happy you did because you, you'd you come in and look at them and you'd go, oh, man, they're still here. I'm coming back for these, Johnny D. I'm coming back for them. And you did. So fast forward, a couple of years later, I'd left. I'd moved to L.A. I'm working for Simmons Drums. I see you at a NAMM show in Chicago. By then, you were big time Jeff Tane Watts playing with, I guess, in Winton's band yeah. and uh, had a sonar endorsement and... I don't know if you remember this. You were climbing up like on a display in the sonar booth, like up high. They had these drums set up in Chicago. High. In Chicago, yeah. And this is typical Tane. You're like goofing around. You climb up. There's a drum set. It was like the end of the show. And a friend that I was I was with recognized you, 
And he said, that's Jeff Watts. And I said, oh, I, I know him. I said, I, I know, I know him. He was at Berkeley and we go back to, you know, and you saw me and you yelled down, you go, Johnny D, I still got those drums. <laughs> and, my, and my friend was so impressed. He was like, wow, you really do know him. So anyway, thank you for doing that. You gave me some, some good cred, but um, that was so funny. You know, and that, that Chicago, that was like a NAMM show, right? Yeah, it was at the old Chicago NAMM show in the summertime. You know who I met then, they, and I think they were like a like a little high school kid, kind of playing in a in a Buddy Rich zone. It was a very young Gary Novak. Oh yes, totally. Yeah. I I think I I I saw him play at the Zildjian booth or Yamaha booth or one somebody's booth that same year. Yes, yeah. he was a kid. He was just a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, playing his butt off yeah yeah so those those drums i had it was really cool i wish i don't still have them but it's really weird because i went through a thing with this i did i did something you know don't feel bad but i did something kind of semi-disgraceful like you know drummers this this you know you can almost feel it coming i can't maybe i should wait maybe i should wait but you know we go through this trendy thing and like you know I let somebody like strip the drums, but before I did that, before I did that, I, I this makes it even worse. I was rehearsing with Ron Carter somewhere in Midtown, and across the street there was kind of like a music store, Charles Aponte Music, maybe on Forty Sixth Street or Forty Fourth Street. And I went in there and I found the snare drum to match the kit and everything. I had the wow. I found the snare drum. It was the same finish. I bought it and I had it and I played it, played it a bunch with Wenton. And then at a certain point, I took it to probably Joe Costatus and got the edges done, you know, and it was, yeah, it was a great hit. And then, but then I let this guy, you know, it was kind of like trendy to take off the finish and get to, you know, get the natural wood the, thing. The wood finish. Yeah. yeah. I did the same thing. So, yeah, yeah. So it happened. So that happened to that kit. And then I, it is, it, it's in Brooklyn. And I do, I ended up donating it to this club. There's a club like the Central Brooklyn Friends of Jazz Association. So it does it gets played a lot. There was a club in Brooklyn called the Up Over Jazz Cafe. And so yeah, I loaned the guy the drums, and then I you know I had I had like a just so many drums. I let him have them, and but then I tried to get them back. I thought about it, and I said, no, he shouldn't have those drums. He's you know he's kind of a jazz dude. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was like, no, nah, man, it's too late. It's too late. So he took he has my kit. He has that kit. And now also it has, instead of the, the flip up mount that it came with, you know, everybody was doing stuff to drums back then. It was, it's kind of stupid, yeah. but there's a pearl mount on it. There's a, there's yeah. a pearl mount on it and there's a rims mount on the Tom Tom. That that's what that's what it is, but it's there, and so they have events and they use it. And I guess they're about to celebrate Max Roach's centennial, like oh, from great. this summer on. You know, so it'll be, you know, I'm sure some kids have played on it and learned from it. But what I do have, da, 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 da. let me see. You can just see these swirly green drums here. Oh yeah, right. look at those. Now check it out. Oh, there's a little ebony. Um, Sonar SQ2, but those drums are Elvins. Oh my god, yeah! So when I turned 50 years old, Riley Coltrane, I had a party, big party, everybody was there, it was crazy. 
epic party. Robbie Coltrane had had bought those, like the two toms, just the two toms at an auction after Elvin passed. And I think they're they might be on a Love Supreme. They're on Ascension. They're on some some records and whatever. So I just he had the two tom toms. So he gave me one for my fiftieth birthday, and then a couple of years later. He gave me the uh, gave me the other one. He was like, "Hey, you might as well just t- you might as well just take it." So I had the two tom toms, and I didn't have a kick drum. I didn't have a kick drum for it, so I kept looking around. And a friend of mine, I had Sonar make me a this. I'll make this quick, but I had Sonar make me a kit like this, like a like an ebony inside and out, you know, SQ two kit. So for some reason, I had this stupid idea that that the the interior shells I, I i got into how birch toms sound you know it's like they're kind of sweet and and clear and they don't clutter up things as much as maple it's, it's not as rich a sound but it, it was kind of useful so i had the idea to get rack toms with birch on the inside and so i had this kit, interesting yeah like a 10 12 13 and then the rest of the you know multiple kick drums and Everything else was maple inside. Everything else was that. And I got it. And I played it like twice. And I found myself never playing it because it just something about it felt weird. It felt uneven. Wow. Yeah. So I had it. Yeah. And then I said, man, I gotta get I gotta get maple toms. That's it. And so I so I called Sonar and I said, man, I can I can send you these toms back. And I, I just need to change them, man. I'm sorry. And they were like, no, just keep them, man. We'll send you the other toms. So they sent me the other toms. And then uh, I have a friend, Steve Waller. He works for, he used to work for American Airlines, but he's one of those. I don't know if he's worse than you, but he's he's very much a drum freak. He has <laughs> too many drums, like many of us. He has too many drums, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so he he, you know, I sent them to him, and then he went to a to like the Chicago Drum Show, and he saw a twenty two inch kit that matched the kit, and so he we exchanged them. So I have Elvin's wretches. Man. Wow. That's, I, I think, you know, I, I last visited Elvin's house um, after he died. I went and had lunch with Keiko at the apartment. Yeah. And this would have been maybe two, th- he died in 2004. Yeah. And it would have been maybe, I went, I went there while Elvin was still alive. And then I went another time in maybe 2005 or six. Yeah. And she still had, you know, a lot of his stuff in the apartment. And I, think I might have seen those drums or maybe the first time, but he had, as you know, he had a bunch of old Gretsch drums, some still in boxes, like some still mm-hmm. in the bags, just, uh, and it's like, you, you feel your heart skip a beat, you know, when you see that stuff, like it's, uh, it's just something that, um, whew, that's, that's just, that's got like serious mojo. Yeah, no, they're here. Yeah. man. I'm, I'm, Good I'm for looking you. for more of them, but, uh, but I, I use them once in a while. You, but usually I use them if if I play with Robbie Coltrane. I'm like, I, I got your drums here. I'm playing them. You know, I, I, I pull them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, I, I you know, thank thank you again for doing this. By the way, thank you so much. And I want to tell everybody if if you haven't seen the episode we did a few weeks ago to uh, honor uh, the great Pete Zeldman. Yeah, Tane was nice enough to be one of the guests on that show. We had a bunch of drummers and friends of Pete, and uh, and it just. I just, you know, after we did that, I said, man, we we, we got to do this. So I'm just so glad we were able to do it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's just a nice hanging out period. So that's cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, likewise. And, and um, always. And I was going to just, so fast forwarding a little bit, moved to New York and, you know, you, you play all those years with, with Brantford and with Winton. So Brantford gets the, gets the gig on the tonight show, the new, you know, with Jay Leno taking over and, um, and that becomes your gig for a few years, right? Yeah. Three years. Yeah. Three years. So I, you know, without, as, uh, Joey Calderazzo says hi to you, by the way. Hey, what's cool. happening? Man, Joey, all right. Thanks for watching. Um, so moving to L.A. must have been enough of a kind of a, right, a shock to the system. I'm, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, it, I mean, it's it's cool. It's just, it's different. It's different. And there's a reason that there's a New York and that there's an L.A. And there's, and there's of course, folks out there that perhaps could, would, never live in New York and vice versa and stuff like that. Um, I think now it would be easier for me to be out there. You know, I feel like the, I felt, I felt like at the time, you know, it, it was like more of a entertainment industry, music town and stuff like that. Like that's really why you're there either to be in a big kick-ass rock band or work in television or work in film and stuff like that. You know, the music more industry. And, um, and at the time, it just felt like the the, um, the artistic community that I was aware of was more underground, and you had, you had to kind of look around to you know get into the underground scene, or you had to hunt and looking, you know, to to find like I mean, Billy Higgins was still alive. I could go and see him, but you had you know you had to go into the hood and and look around. Now I feel like there's more creative stuff on the surface, and and the scenes are a little more integrated and stuff like that. But um, but you know I embraced it. I feel I I feel like they offered Branford that gig, and he gets offered so many things that you know sometimes he's like, oh man, they want me to do this, man. I'm not doing that. You know, get out of here with that. He's always like that about everything, and um, he just kind of we were on the we were on the road. And he just like mentioned it casually. Yeah, they want me to do it tonight, show, man. I'm not doing that, man. Get out of here. <laughs> We were like, wait a minute, man. <laughs> you know, you can get some nice snacks with that tonight show. It's like, need a nice thing. And so then, he, <laughs> so then he considered it. And then, yeah, so then he, he decided to do it. He decided to take us out there. And, um, yeah, well, the whole thing was like a real different thing, of course. But it, it's kind of like we went out there. And we were, they had us as guests on the show. And then we had an off day in LA and they, they got like real estate people and they came and they took us around to look at houses and stuff like that and cars and all that. And we're getting into the lifestyle. And, um, you know, me, myself and Kenny Kirkland, we had found a house. It, we had found like a really cool house, like a, like a duplex, like a three bedroom house on two floors and it had parked mm -hmm. like five cars and it was really cool. And it was just like at the at the edge of the at the edge of the hood, like like, like kind of close to Pico, but very nice neighborhood, old neighborhood and stuff like that. But what was funny was we signed the lease and then we went back to New York. And then like about three weeks later, the Rodney King verdict happened. Oh, and there were just riots man. everywhere. And the guy that was gonna rent us the house, he was like, Man, I'm selling this house. You're, I'm tearing up your lease, you know, blah, blah, blah. So um, so we moved to LA for the show, and I lived in a hotel for like a month. And then we, uh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, 
but yeah. but I, I will say it was cool. I got I, I embraced it for what it was, and it's really cool. And I play with people that I play with Elton John and Little Richard and Boys to Men and Mary J. Blige and just like every, Steve Vai and every I play with everybody. Everybody it was crazy. Yeah. Johnny Mathis yeah. and Willie Nelson, you know. And I really got into it, and I had different kits for stuff, and they gave me like a big drum box that Smitty inherited when he got out there. And, um, you know, so I got into it, you know, you know, listening to the track and, you know, I had my tech like blow samples, you know, so I could try to get the right sound. I had triggers on the drums and, you know, just, just trying really trying to do the gig for what it was. I really, you know, I did appreciate it at the same time. I was really missing New York. You know, I still had my place in Brooklyn and um, the first year it was like every break that we got, it's like me and Kenny Kirkland, we were like running back to New York, like jumping on the red eye, going back to the city, just keeping that vibe happening. But yeah, yeah. But, but, a, but a great experience. I would embrace it more now, but I, I hadn't gotten my my jazzy New York Jones, it, you know, I hadn't gotten it out of my system, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. No, I can totally, I, I, you know, I, I didn't, I probably saw you a few times during that time, but I, but I, I sensed that, you know, knowing what I know, knew and know about you, that it was, um, and, and forgive the, the, this might be like a crude expression, but kind of like, it was like a day job really. Right. I mean, it was kind of like a, you know, like a, as close to that. And as a, that, you know, for a musician that you could call it that. And, uh, but it wasn't i could i could see that your your roots were really in the new york scene like that's you know how could it not be you know yeah i mean i could dig it i had a i had a great car you know you could park your car <laughs> you get fresh produce and it was happening you know we were living yeah. that life but um you don't have to wash your car for like weeks out there too which is great which is great. it stays clean great for me that's 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 a, that's the plus for me. me too yeah <laughs> but it was yeah what was what was i going to say yeah, it started to become like a lunch pail kind of thing. So you do it and you start to see the sameness of it. And and then you're like, oh, wasn't Arnold Schwarzenegger just here? You're like, what is this? It's like, you know, it's like <laughs> it's, it's like a big cycle. And then the more I did it, it, you know, whatever you're doing, that's kind of who you are. And so, you know, I was like creative East Coast musician, but now I'm kind of like entertainment industry musician or whatever. So it's almost like um, the people that were into creative music or into jazz out there, it's like I was more associated with with television. So it's kind of like, you know, um, Cecil Taylor's coming to town. Do you know Do you know him? I'm like, yeah, I used to go to his house. He's like, we're in Hargrove. Joshua Redman's playing tonight. You should go see him. I'm like, I've known him since he was like 19 or something like that. You know, it's like, you know, people just associate you with this other thing. But I will say that, like so many things that that happened for me and stuff like that, we were out there and it's great, and I had some had some great experiences, and I I really know what the entertainment industry is about, and and, it's, and you know I have friends and stuff like that. But I get I guess the bottom line is that our lives were already perfect, you know. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't need it. We didn't need it. We already, you know, we we were already. Even even though a lot of the output was would be be centered around like traditional jazz, it's like we were all always like kind of popular, like almost like pop stars doing jazz or whatever. You know, it's like 
everything was always first class. You know, sometimes we get on the yeah. plane and we'd, we'd be in business class and we see like people in the hip hop rhyming coach and stuff like that. It's like, you know, <laughs> you know, we always got like great treatment and yeah, yeah. I'm, I've always been very fortunate. Yeah. No, oh, that's great, man. That's and and I, I think you said that perfectly too. That like you you guys had arrived. I mean, it didn't take that, you know, that gig for you to arrive. You had arrived, and that's, you know, you could argue that's why people wanted to put you. You know, why you got that gig, why that was offered, because you had arrived. You know, and yeah. um, so so nowadays, I mean, we're both same age you know yeah older and wiser are you are you more selective about the gigs that you do like as far as traveling and going on the road and uh, i know you have a you have a daughter right i have, I have two girls they're they're two girls yeah eternal twins they're they okay they're, they're, they turned 12 this year and um you know musically inclined great athletes and stuff like that and uh, great and especially during the pandemic Although it was unfortunate for many people, you know, it was just nice being home every day and they were, you know, doing remote school and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I'm 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 more selective selective. I, I do mostly stuff for my friends. I'm not just trying to fill up my schedule. You know, you know, I did okay with like real estate and stuff like that. So it's like I'm I don't have to hustle, hustle. Um great. Yeah, so I just kind of I kind of do stuff for for my friends mostly, and then I'm I'm able to 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 lead my own stuff and and do that more. So that's nice to be in control of that. And then this latest thing that popped up during the pandemic is this all this opera stuff. So I'm you know I'm, I'm, I am playing with the Metropolitan Opera all the time. You know at least like yeah right like one of, I'm in the middle of a run now. Um, doing Terrence Blanchard's uh, Champion Opera, so that's the second one I've done at the Met, and then it that you know that's nice because it's nice work and it's in town and it was, and it's with really really great musicians. Like everybody involved is like very very high quality instrumentalists and singers and stuff like that. So so yeah, so this week I'm I'm doing operas, but then now I'm doing stuff with the, the Met, the the chamber version of the Met Opera. It's like maybe like like 16 musicians and stuff like that. We do reductions and we're going to play at the the recital hall at Carnegie hall on Sunday and stuff like, that. Man. you know, more Grammys coming, you know, so more Grammys. I was going to say, and, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and this, uh, the opera that you're doing now though, that you, I think you told me that won a Grammy too, right? That's yeah. Well, that's last, like a year and a half ago, I did this, uh, opera that's, that's about the journalist, Charles Blow. And it's written by Terrence Blanchard, and it's called "Fire Shut Up in My Bones." So this, yeah, this spring, that won Best Opera Recording Grammy, and then this is a different one. This one is about the boxer Emil Griffith, and uh, I played it previously at the at the Kennedy Center with the National Opera, but now that's come to the Met, and this that opera is called Champion. And it's 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 pretty great. It's like a big cultural event that brings everybody together, and it's high quality. And you know, it's some history great, making man. stuff. It's, it's very very cool to be involved there. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations, Jeff. Man, that's wow. Yeah. yeah. You know, but just for for music for, for for musicians, just you know, expose yourself to as much things as you can because you just never know where you where you're gonna be, man. You never you know. I never thought I would, you know, I'd, I'd be doing this opera stuff and 
you know, or, or working with the Tonight Show, you know, just be, just keep yourself open. Even, even if you don't foresee foresee yourself um, doing a wide array of things, you know, just try to have some kind of working knowledge of, of different stuff, you know. That's, that's great advice. And also I think um, I'll say this cause I don't think you will, but just be a good guy like you are too. And that, that goes a long way too, you know, and, yeah. Knowing you as long as I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say that, uh, yeah. My general thing, like people will ask me very specific questions about stuff, but a lot of things for me come back to to loving music. Like if you really, really love music, then then that you know that makes you treat people better. Um, you don't want to you don't want to interfere with the music flowing and and growing and stuff like that. So that makes you. That makes you uh, prepare for gigs better because you don't want to inconvenience people and you want to help them do their music. You know, it makes you practice, makes you be on time so you don't waste people's time. Uh, yeah. it, ju- it just takes care of a lot, you know, and, and it's really, really, I can't emphasize enough the, the privilege of being able to feed somebody like this with music, you know, take care of my family yeah yeah having fun just from like playing some music it's like i don't really you know my father had a job i don't really have a job it's like you know of course like everybody says the job is being there or traveling to to be somewhere at a certain time but you know it's really yeah Yeah. well you know i mean the job that you do have is being a great father which you are and a great husband and uh and you do those jobs really well so Man. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely yeah. say that now. Like just having kids, and you know it, it just really refocuses everything. So it's like you know, yeah. you're not practicing to to be fabulous or anyway, or to impress anybody. Well, you know, I'm 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 practicing to take care of them and and to be a better person. And they see see somebody like like try to be dedicated to something, you know. So they, you know. Yeah, it's just changes, reprioritizes everything. You know, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this today and, and congratulations on all the Grammys you've won in the last hour that we've been doing this. It's raining. It's raining. It's raining. <laughs> it's it's raining Gra- seven time Grammy Award winning and counting Jeff Tane Watts. Yeah, exactly. My old friend. Thank you so much for being here. Big hand everybody for Tane. Yeah. Quite entertaining. Okay, I yeah, I know. Never heard that before, I'm sure. But uh, yeah. Sorry I talked so long and stuff. We could have got more questions, but it's cool. No, man, are you kidding? This was incredible. <laughs> this people loved it, and I want to thank everybody for watching today. Um thank you folks. Tane, hang with me for one second if you would, and uh I'll see you all real soon. Jeff Tane Watts. Yeah. All right, that's my show. Thanks for listening. You can watch episodes of Live from My Drum Room live in real time on Facebook Live by following my Facebook page, Live from My Drum Room with John DeChristopher, and also my YouTube channel, Live from My Drum Room with John DeChristopher. And while you're there on YouTube, check out my new show, Track Talk, iconic songs with iconic drum parts and the drummers who created them. It's really cool. Check it out. Shorter episodes. You'll love it. And Track Talk is only available as part of my Live From My Drum Room series on my Live From My Drum Room YouTube channel and podcast platforms. So please subscribe. 
All Live From My Drum Room and Track Talk podcasts are available on all the major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, etc. Also want to give a big thanks to my friend Steve Gadd for providing the music for my show. That's really Steve. And remember, no drummers are harmed during any episodes of Live From My Drum Room or Track Talk. So drummers, remember, when in doubt, leave it out, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.